From KLIN Radio and the Lincoln Independent Business Association, this is the Lincoln Business Beat, a weekly summary of news affecting area business and a review of interesting topics and issues. Along with LIBA President and CEO Bud Seinhorst, I'm Mark Vale. Glad to have you joining us. Lincoln Business Beat is made possible by the 1890 Initiative. Visit 1890Nebraska.com, where 100% of your donation goes directly to Husker student-athletes. Oh, we've got a busy, busy Lincoln Business Beat, uh, Bud. A lot to talk about and uh, some interesting topics. And then in our deep dive, we're going to welcome in Phil Young. Yeah, we've got uh, a lot to go over. There's a lot happening around town. Um, just some things that we've talked about over the course of the last, gosh, some of these are probably the last year. We're going to talk about the floodplain issue, which has been a big thing, um, and then uh, kind of recap some things. Then we'll get into uh, some new things that are happening uh, at the Nebraska Department of Environment and Energy on some greenhouse gas reductions. So uh, this is, I guess, we'll call it our environmental day, maybe. Well, we can call it that, but... <laughs> Uh, and I've got Carter with me today. Carter's our policy research coordinator. We've talked uh, about Carter on the show, but uh, Carter is actually going to pinch hit next week while I have to be out uh, of the office. So we're going to get Carter all ready, and we'll kind of involve him today as well. So uh, we'll just jump right in. Absolutely. So uh, the earlier this year, there was this floodplain issue that we talked about where um, the city changed some of their rules on the floodplain and, and those types of things. And then uh, recently they're working on some text amendments because one of the conversations during the original debate involved grandfathering projects. And that's one of the questions we had here on the Lincoln Business Beat was, what are what about if I have a project existing? And so the city has had some things the way they've been operating. We had John Carlson, the mayor's deputy chief of staff, over at one of our LIBA con- committee meetings uh, here about a week ago uh, to talk about this. So he's been making the rounds with different groups like LIBA, the Realtors Association, and, and the Home Builders. So uh, just to talk about some of these grandfathering text amendments. Was this part of uh, when they were discussing uh, the mapping to updating the maps on flood zones? This was all part of that discussion? Yeah, this was all part of that discussion. And okay. there were there are multiple council members that, that raised the question during the conversation, uh, what do we do about projects that are at a certain point? Because... There were a lot of people that were at certain points with their projects. Okay, what do I do now? Do I have to go backwards because this went into effect, or how does that work? So, uh, working on some grandfathering. So. Okay. So, well, let's get into it because these text amendments uh, sound to be pretty important in yeah. the discussion. Um, it's it's a good discussion, and, and I'm glad to see. You know, I'll give credit where credit is due. The city, in my opinion, is doing a good job of getting out and talking about these things which maybe wasn't as much the case that we talked about earlier on the floodplain issue. So, um, Carter, uh, you were involved in the conversation about uh, these text amendments that we had here oh, about a week or so ago. Um, talk a little bit, just give us a little bit on the kind of the process of what the city's going through related to updating the maps. Yeah, thank you again, Bud, for bringing me in. So the city revised in their floodplain code earlier this year 
Um, beginning March 1st, the elevation upon which structures built within the floodplain for new developments has to be two feet above the surface. Now, all of the structures prior to that were at one foot, yeah, because that's the state and federal standards. So. Yeah, so, so what, what the code revision now is, is getting feedback from the public, different organizations, so that the language in the clause that allows the structures built prior to March 1st of this year can remain at one foot. So for all of the developments that started construction or up to the point that they had their plans submitted and were approved by the city, um, they they are allowed to remain at one foot. Now the two foot that's prior to prior March to 1st. March first. So if yes, yeah. So they get to stay at the one foot level if they had their plans submitted and were in that process. So. Um, that's, that's a good, good, good job, Carter, of kind of giving us the, the overview on that. Um, and so now, um, what the city's doing, so we, we heard a lot about the updating of the floodplain maps. And so, uh, what the city has done is they have hired, so the city has to hire someone to come in and do the evaluation. This is how good the federal government is when they work with you. <laughs> you go hire somebody, you do all the work, and then you send us the plans, and we'll just, you know, review them and, and, and go through our process. So <clears throat> the city has someone hired. They're already um, in process. So there are 10 basins, as they refer to them, that they're evaluating on this floodplain issue and those 10 basins two of them are in process right now uh to evaluate you know with mapping and all those kind of things what they where they think the floodplain may may come and then there's also uh we just found out there's another two that they've approved so phase one they've got the first two phase two they've got the second two and then in phase three they're going to do three of them and i think phase four they'll do another three so they do these 10 different basins around the city and then once that is completed they'll bring the whole map together and then that's what they will submit to fema for uh for the approval to change the floodplain what are the primary uses for these maps is it for just for coding or other other things tied to it coding and development and all those kind of things it also impacts flood insurance so um it'll impact you know and if you build that right now you build that two foot above that gets you out of the floodplain insurance and so if you if you build in another area, then you'll have to have flood flood insurance. So it kind of it's a determining factor related to the flood insurance as well. Is this still open for public uh, discussion, or uh, do people have a chance to uh, put in their thoughts? Yeah, they're still collecting input from the public. John has been making his rounds with uh, numerous organizations within the community. They're hoping to get something done within the next few months to get it reviewed and approved by the city council. And then it is off to FEMA, which could be an extended period of time. Carter, how can they get know. a hold of John? Um, you can just email him at his 
his his work email jcarlson at lincoln.ne.gov or give him a call at 402-441-7224. And just a reminder, John is in the mayor's office. Yeah, he's the deputy chief of staff of the mayor. So just to reiterate what Carter said, uh, jcarlson at lincoln.ne.gov, 402-441-7224. Um, The other thing I would just, as we wrap up this discussion, I would point out is, so once the new map is drawn and approved by FEMA, which is about a five-year process, five- to six-year process, then uh, the requirements go back to that one foot above the floodplain, not two feet. So that's something important, too, uh, that we learned in our discussions with uh, Mr. Carlson. Okay. Interesting. A lot, uh, lot going on, a lot to unpack in this one. <laughs> as uh, complicated as it was. I want to review the uh, Liba luncheon this past week. A very uh, detailed and interesting presentation by Acting Police Chief Michonne Morrow. Uh, she really went into some of their issues on recruiting, but also some of their long term uh, goals and plans. Uh, a lot more uh, has gone into her thought processes since she's been in that position now for a couple of months. Yeah, so uh, Chief Morrow's been in there for about three months. Um, and I, before we get deep into what she talked about, I want to give her a shout-out. So um, earlier this week, there was an officer-involved shooting here in Lincoln uh, where a police officer was assaulted and stabbed, I believe, in the neck, um, trying to uh, mitigate a situation at the bus stop or the bus depot up on 52nd and Superior. Um, and Chief Morrow had been at a training in on the West Coast, and on Monday she got up about 5 o'clock in the morning, and when she got back to Omaha to drive back to Lincoln on Monday night, well, early Tuesday morning, she was driving back. Um, she was still on the outskirts of Omaha. She got the call about the officer-involved shooting, and so she w- had not been to bed. <laughs> from five o'clock the morning before until we had our luncheon at noon that day. So I really appreciate her keeping that commitment and being there. Um, I'm very pleased that the officer uh, was expected to make a full recovery. He is recovering at home. And he's recovering at home now. So um, I, I'm thankful that, that it was not a more serious <laughs> situation for that officer and for his family and so i really want to give chief morrow a shout out for <laughs> she was she said she was a little uh, weary eyed but i thought she did a really great job and i really appreciate her making that commitment yeah, they're, they're looking at staffing you know, as far as 2025 and and they're they're already in the planning phases for this it seems like they're really putting some thought process in and doing a lot of data analysis after they uh, did away with the downtown um, team. The center team, yeah. Center team. So it was it was interesting to hear all the discussions and the data analysis that had been done and how they're uh, extrapolating that and putting them into these plans. Yeah, I, I was really impressed with the kind of the long-range vision uh, that Chief Morrow uh, shared with us. In 2024, they're going to have, and they have a couple of phases here, um, but in 2024, they're looking at about uh, 14 new positions. So in phase one, which will be in January, um, they're looking at one lieutenant promotion, a couple of sergeant promotions, adding a member of the Northwest team, which absorbed part of that downtown area um, in the 
in the when the center team was eliminated, and then one person uh, into the special victim domestic violence unit investigator. So yeah, those those statistics on domestic violence were pretty shocking. Unbelievable! It was almost twelve hundred domestic violence um, cases investigations this year so far. And so uh, it's really nice to see that they're they're looking to address that, and so that's gonna, that's kind of the January 2024 look. Um, then when they get to phase two in 2024, they're going to have an additional eight positions with four team investigators, which adds an investigator to each of the four teams, uh, two lieutenants to work in the narcotics and special victim units. Uh, an education and personnel officer, and then an additional uh, special victim unit investigator. Because with all those cases, I mean, nearly 1,200 domestic violence cases, plus all the other things, they need to have those investigators so that they can move through their process. And then they looked at uh, 2025 in Phase 3, four lieutenants and then six traffic unit officers uh, which has been something that has suffered quite a bit, and we've mentioned this on Lincoln Business Beat previously, is all of the traffic fatalities that we've talked about over the last 12 to 18 months, just all of those things. So they want to get uh, six more because the traffic unit is the one that's really suffered through this process as they've reassigned officers. So um, it's it's nice to see and understand what that vision and that plan is. Um, I, I found it interesting, Chief Morrow, uh, you know, their goal is to be at one point officers per thousand, which means they'd need to get upwards of four, more than 400 officers on the streets. And right now they're about 330. And <clears throat> that's a big jump. But I think what they're doing incrementally is to get to their authorized strength, which I think was around 380. Yeah, I remember three seventy, three eighty. There you in go. There. And and of course that adjusts a little bit. Well, their authorized level is set by the budget, but uh, on the one point five per one thousand population, that varies. And uh, let's face it, it's going to climb. Yeah, that that number is only going to get higher. But I think what they're doing is they're trying to focus on the incremental steps to get to authorized strength, uh, and then continue to build. And I mean, the other thing to remember in this whole process is. You know, she's talking about over the course of the next couple of years, 24 additional officers. Um, But what I found interesting is they had over 200 applicants for the current class, and they've got, they're down to 15 into one phase of the recruiting and another six. So they went from 240 to 21. Uh, Because of their process, they're using very high standards. They go through physical, mental uh, evaluations, polygraphs, all of those kind of things. And and really, they want to make sure that when they go through their vetting process, when they make the investment to put an officer on the street, that, th- that they're putting the right folks on the street. And I did appreciate her update on the lateral moves, if they ha- can hire a an officer, a commissioned officer that's you know, some, some other department, in-state, out-of-state, how that affects their training schedule and bringing them up. That was an interesting uh, sidelight that I really hadn't thought a lot about. Yeah, when they bring a lateral, especially one from within the state, they can get them 
onto the street significantly faster um, than someone who starts at the beginning of the academy. And they've also been able to work with the state because there are some requirements with the state and the crime commission. Um, but when, if someone wants to come from another state, pick a state, there's 49 other choices. What they do is they, they lay out their training and the LPD training side by side and make sure that those cross over, and then wherever it doesn't, they're able to get them that training and still be able to get them on the street faster. So hopefully through some of the recruitment efforts they're trying to make and, and be more proactive in that, we'll, we'll, we'll see them uh, move toward that authorized strength a little quicker. And uh, the calendar stays busy. You know, the, I don't think the calendar ever slows down at LIBA. I love it. So... Uh, October 24th, Coffee and Contacts from 7.30 to 9 at Revolution Wraps out at 18th and Cornhusker. On uh, Thursday, October 26th, we have our ribbon cutting at Ascend Aesthetics' new uh, facility at 1600 Normandy Court, which is about 16th and Old Cheney area. That's at 4.30 p.m. And then also we've talked a little bit on November 17th. We have our Leba Murder Mystery event uh, out at James Arthur Vineyards, and we have just a couple of tickets available. So if folks want tickets, they can email me, bud at leba.org. That's B-U-D at L-I-B-A dot O-R-G. Or they can call the office at 402-466-3419. Our deep dive is coming up. We're going to have uh, Phil Young and Carter uh, with Leba talk extensively about some new things happening with the Nebraska Department of Environment and Energy. We'll do that in just a moment. Husker fans, you've probably heard about NIL, name, image, and likeness, and now you can have an immediate effect on the success of the program. The 1890 Initiative is Nebraska's premier NIL company, and with your help, we can maximize our student-athletes' opportunities with NIL and prepare them for life after college. Nebraska has always been a leader in college athletics. Let's do the same with NIL. To learn more, visit 1890nebraska.com, where 100% of your donation goes directly to Husker student-athletes. That's 1890nebraska.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Back on the Lincoln Business Beat, our deep dive segment, uh, we welcome in another guest. First time on the uh Lincoln Business Beat podcast. Welcome, Phil Young. Thanks. It's great to be here. Longtime LIBA board member, an active member of LIBA, and um, and also Carter's still with us. Um, so earlier this week, the Nebraska Department of Environment and Energy, NDEE, hosted a webinar discussing a plan they have 
uh, related to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and I thought this would be a good topic for our business owners because I think there were a few things uh, through the presentation that really made a lot of sense uh, on on how this is going to work and what's going on. So uh, the state received a, a grant from the feds. Carter, talk to us a little bit about that and, and kind of what that means. They got the grant to do. Yeah. So it was to do some research and then there's other grants or how's that work? Carter? Yeah. So as part of the climate pollution reduction grant program, which is under the umbrella of the inflation reduction act, the Nebraska Department of Environment and Energy has received $3 million uh, to look for ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions over the next four years. There's going to be two phases. Right now we're in the planning phase, so the department is working with other state agencies and organizations like the Nebraska Farm Bureau, Nebraska Cattlemen, um, to come up with voluntary actions and incentive programs that are going to reduce gre- greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so the first phase of the planning needs to be done by March 1st of 2024. That's when their primary climate action plan needs to be submitted. And then following that, their comprehensive climate action plan will be submitted by August of 2025. Excellent. And um, Phil, you and I talked about this a little bit. And um, one of the things I think that we both appreciated was there were not mandates involved. So talk a little bit about kind of what the the state was talking about when they talked about these programs. Well, when they made the presentation, I'm sure in several other states across America, maybe some of the bluer states politically – they will mandate certain actions, but in Nebraska, with our DE, with our DEE and uh, Governor Pillen, they will only be recommendations. They're going to use incentives, uh, and incentive programs where they'll help out with funding some of these activities, but they will not be mandating anything to industry, which I think is very good for business. Great. And I'm going to stick with Phil here for a second. So in the presentation, they had these nice pie charts, very bright colors um, that talked about emission inventories by sector. You know, talk to us a little bit about how those look in Nebraska and maybe compared nationally, Phil. Yeah, I don't want to go into a whole lot of numbers, so I'm going to use some comparisons here. For instance, uh, in the ag sector, the uh, greenhouse gas emissions in Nebraska are four times what they are at the national level. Uh, In the transportation sector, our transportation sector is half of what the national greenhouse gas emissions are. And in the industrial sector, uh, Nebraska's greenhouse gas emissions are less than half of the national national emissions. And what this means, uh, I think the reason they're getting the Farm Bureau and the cattlemen involved is a major focus, obviously, if you're trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you need to go where the emissions are. And so I think one of their big focuses here in Nebraska is going to be targeted at the ag sector. In fact, of the 42% of greenhouse gas emissions in Nebraska, 88% of those come from the beef and cattle industry. Wow. Okay. So really a heavy emission inventory with the ag sector, obviously, uh, being our number one industry here in the state. So I I thought... Um, as I was looking at, at the slides that they provided, they were 
uh, several different things that, um, you know, they talked about solar canopies for parking lots and feed lots and things like that. What, uh, either one of you guys who wants to jump in here, what do you think would be positive for business owners in this respect? Well, actually, Phil, if I could, my dad would always take us on fishing trips up to South Dakota and alongside the highway in this one section, there were always hundreds, if not thousands of solar panels on the side of the road. And so my brothers and I would always ask him, like, why don't we do that when we're older? Just get a bunch of solar panels, a bunch of windmills, and just live off of that. And he said, well, the problem usually is, is that they're really expensive to set up. They cost a lot to maintain, and they're subject to damage, and you don't know the return that you're getting on the investment. But through this, if you're getting the funding to set those things up, then that takes out a lot of the 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 problem with that. So I think it makes it uh, a great idea for a lot of businesses. And the incentives kind of help with that offset that cost. It, it, it alleviates about, it right? alleviates the main concern, which is the cost of installing that. Excellent. You also have a situation in Nebraska where there's a lot more land than people, and so what you have is whether it might be a car dealership who if you put solar panels on over a car dealership's big lot, not only does that car dealership have its electric bill paid, but the solar panels technically are also protecting those cars from weather, sun, oxidation, hail, and those kinds of things. And so it can protect cars. Same thing with a, a big uh, retail parking lot or a grocery store parking lot. You kind of get the same, the, uh, same effect as well as feedlots, where they, there's been a lot of discussion lately putting them over on the top of feedlots because in the summer you keep the uh, 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 heat, the sun, off of cattle on those really burning hot days. And in the winter you keep snow and ice from the animals as well. So uh, it's actually and, – but and, and it provides shade in the summer. So Yeah, it's interesting you talk about those canopies because um, Sid Dillon here in Lincoln – uh, down on South 27th, put in those canopies over their car lot. And um, just a canopy, it wasn't solar, but the, they had done a bunch of research because of hail damage and things like that. And, I mean, I think they said that it was going to pay off in just a couple of, like, three or four years with all the claims and all those kind of things. And now uh, multiple other car dealerships around the state, you're starting to see these canopies because, uh, they were leading the way. So, um, but back to the, the solar thing, I mean, there's a lot of interesting, I think concepts here. Uh, I, I recently was talking with a business owner that's looking at building a new building on their property and they're talking about solar shingles, uh, on top of their building. And so I think there, there's some interesting things here potentially with these incentives that, um, might be fascinating to to just watch and see how it grows. The solar technology is changing monthly, almost. <laughs> it seems like they're coming up with... Almost with, like phone apps. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. They're coming up with new and better technologies, more efficient uh, use. Obviously, uh, Nebraska is a, one of the top three wind states, but and we're not quite as good on solar as maybe in the southwest. Uh, part of the United States, but we're still pretty good, and and the technology is getting better and better. And as you bring in improved battery storage, 
that's where solar can become much more effective because you can charge batteries during the day and use that energy at night. Let me throw in a question here. Uh, how involved do they get with the, uh, the electric companies and utilizing the transmission lines of, of others? Are they cont- taking that all into consideration as they look to, in this case, solar? Obviously, anytime you put in a, a what they call industry-grade solar, you have to put in connections and uh, 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 substations in order to connect to the main transmission lines. If you do it within the city of Lincoln, for instance, we deal with LES, Lincoln Electric System, uh, you would have to work with them on what kind of energy uh, trade you have, whether you're generating just enough to operate your own uh, operation or business, or whether you need to sell that back in and, and put electricity back into the grid. But obviously, any kind of self-contained renewable for a business that uses substantial energy with electric rates going up again for the second straight year it's a great way for them to save money on on electricity if they can produce it themselves very good um carter i'm going to come back to you for a minute um they they identified some incentives uh potentially for homeowners Mm -hmm. um and and talk about how this might be good for uh, our homeowners and the employees of our business owners yeah. and the business owners themselves. Yeah, well, really anybody who's owning a home, they would uh, potentially... Now, it's important to note these are all just preliminary ideas. Nothing set in stone, um, but they're discussing um, giving out rebates for homeowners who install high-efficiency effic- high electric heat pumps and electric home appliances in place of natural gas, and uh, also providing the funding for the installation of those things through future grants that are going to come as a result of this one. Um, But one of the focuses for the department was looking at a lot of the areas that they classify as underserved, um, low-income areas, areas that um, qualify as such, where the the housing, a lot of the low-income housing doesn't match up to the standard that uh, it would need to to receive these sorts of things. So if they are not eligible, there's talk that this could provide funding for the repairs or the upgrades to those houses, such as fixing electrical wiring, um, adding in some insulation, removing mold, taking care of safety hazards, those sorts of things to make those homes eligible. So preliminary ideas, but they're talking about doing quite a few things. Excellent. So, um, Phil, they were talking about some financial incentives for industry and some policy program examples. Uh, Talk about those a little bit, what you kind of saw with those, uh, maybe for some different larger, maybe, I don't know, to me it came across more on the manufacturing-type facilities. What were some of those projects they talked about? That fell under the industry category in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. They were talking about financial incentives for facilities with low and medium temperature processes so they could replace boilers and process heaters with heat pumps. Another uh, example they mentioned was funding to utilities to expand energy efficiency incentives for industrial customers. And this would be where the grant would go to 
a, a local utility, and then that local utility would use it to work with its industrial customers. And another one was to promote a hydrogen hub to reduce fossil fuel use and share infrastructure programs and strategies. And we've talked about, there, there's been a lot of discussion about these hydrogen hubs to try and capture gas stored in, underground and uh, and Nebraska having a lot of land again would be a great place to have these underground storages. But there's back and forth issues with that topic too. So, and once again, this was the preliminary proposal by NDEE, and so what they're doing, they want input from this, and they're going to go through that process to get input from people to gather their ideas, both positive and negative, about what they've already proposed, as well as uh, anybody who may have other ideas of their own. So, Carter, uh, tell us how they said they could get a hold of them and, and, and submit comments. Yeah, if you would like to offer your comments to the NDEE, you can either submit a written letter addressed to the Nebraska Department of Environment and Energy, attention to Randy Smith, the Director of Waste and Air Grants Section, P.O. Box 98922, Lincoln, Nebraska, zip code 98509-8922. Or if you would like to send an email, you can just do that to ndee.climatepollution at nebraska.gov. I'm pretty sure the state messed up on their uh, slide here because I believe the zip code is 68509. Uh, but what we'll do is um, we will have Carter in his policy update um, and put this out to our members so they see this. Um, a link to the presentation, a link to the slide presentation uh, at NDEE, which also includes this information uh, so that our members can can look and see uh, where this is and, and how they can submit comment and get a better idea about some of these programs. We we tried to give a high level, uh, you know, we probably could have spent four or five episodes on the Lincoln Business Beat uh, just talking about this issue. But um, <clears throat> so the interesting thing to me about this when, when we were preparing for the episode was, so the state got a $3 million grant from the feds to kind of put this plan together, put these ideas together and then there, the the feds are going to actually have a bigger grant program, and I think it, the number was in the B's for billions of dollars that they're going to have available. But I'll be interested, and and Phil and I talk politics all the time, so I want to kind of bring a political perspective into this. I mean, politically, how do you think this this program works? Well. We don't know yet because there haven't been specific uh, items from the Biden administration. What we do know is that the $3 million is for this preliminary proposal for the state of Nebraska to put this together. It then submits it to the EPA, and then the EPA decides how it's going to spend $4.6 billion in terms of incentives to state or in terms of grants to states. The, the political question becomes, does the EPA – look at this and say, uh, incentives are nice, but we'd rather have you mandate certain programs in certain states and have you force business and industry and agriculture to do certain things. We'll fund that because as a mandate, we know exactly what kind of reductions we'll get. They can measure those much more easily. Whereas opposed if it's just an incentive and it's up to the private industry or private rancher or farmer's choice or a business's choice, 
yeah, you don't really know what you're going to get, and it's it's hard to measure the actual reductions. So it depends on how the EPA looks at this. If they if they really prefer mandates, or if they'll they will fund uh, incentives. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch because I mean, what we've seen in Lincoln is a lot of mandates <laughs> um, that have come from the city of Lincoln that have been proposed by the mayor and and uh, passed by the city council in their big climate action plan. I was intrigued by the fact that the state of Nebraska said, we're going to offer incentive programs, which I think, I mean, my personal opinion, this is not the opinion of LIBA because we haven't taken a position on it. But but personally, I feel like when you offer incentives, it makes it a little easier for people in their planning process. You know, when you mandate it, it, it becomes a lot more restrictive. And I think when you put mandates in, there's a just there's more restriction involved it seems like but it offers an opportunity for them to maybe think about hey we were thinking about maybe doing some solar out at our place maybe now that process moves up three or four years if there's uh, these incentives or something like that so it'll be it'll be fascinating to watch I think it also works better I think with the business where if it's an incentive and the business is doing it they know it's part of their plan and they don't have to adapt it to some mandate they can they can work it into the current plan that they had. And I think there's more enthusiasm by that private business or individual or farmer, rancher, whomever. Uh, and there's more enthusiasm behind doing it if it's if they look at it as their idea. You yeah, know, well, I mean, and, you know, you think about a farmer or rancher that is maybe thinking about putting that canopy in to try to shade their cattle from some of the elements. And they're like, wow, that's a that's a pretty big chunk. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe if there's some incentives involved here, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that helps some of those expedite those projects instead of saying, well, we'll see if we can do it over the next 10 years. Maybe it becomes five. And and also, when those projects happen, I think it just makes a better – it's a better deal for our, for our farmers, our ranchers, and our business owners. Part of it, though, is also going to be the level of the incentive. If it's a significant incentive, it's more likely to happen than if it's a token yeah, that'll be interesting too. If you're going to do a solar project and it's, you know, thirty-five or forty percent of the project or more, whatever it might be, that may be a little more intriguing to people than if it's not. If people want to go online at the NDEE website, they can see this presentation. And in that presentation, they talked about categories of of spending, and they talked about projects between two hundred and five hundred million dollars. And then they talked about uh, another level at the bottom that was between two million and five million dollars. So it just depends kind of on which category these proposals fall into regarding how much money you want to spend. Again, as I said at the beginning, because the ag sector is such a high emitter of greenhouse gas emissions, I have a feeling that Nebraska is probably going to push towards some of those canopy ideas and some some other activities along those lines looking at livestock waste, which the methane of which is another big greenhouse gas producer. And so I think you could see those areas maybe focused on in Nebraska a little bit more in terms of incentivizing farmers and ranchers. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. So I'm going to throw a curveball because we didn't talk about this. So I know Phil played baseball a day or two ago. So I'm going to throw a curveball at you, Phil, and Carter, chime in too if you have thoughts. But I'm also interested by all the solar kind of projects that they talk about. And I wonder, 
how our public power entities in Nebraska, since we're a public power state, I wonder how that will, I wonder how the public power industry feels about these projects. Well, the history in in public power, and I I don't want to necessarily dog it because our rates in Nebraska are, are pretty good, but I know I was involved with some renewable projects for a client years ago and trying to connect to their grid, it was a big pain. I mean, they did not make it easy. They put in a lot of rules and regs. Consequently, the legislature has tried to pass some laws over the years to make it easier for, for instance, homeowners to do solar panels on their rooftops and things like that, uh, or even small wind for small communities. Uh, public power has come around to be more willing to work with entities on that and put it back in. But in all fairness, it is a real challenge when you have a whole bunch of rooftops out there with solar on it that are hooked into the main grid to to return excess power that they produce to the grid. It's really difficult for a for a big utility to try and figure out how to handle that load that's coming in because they don't know if it's going to be a really sunny day and they're going to be dealing with a lot of it or they don't know if the wind's blowing a lot and they're going to be dealing with a lot of it and so it is a challenge to the utility to accommodate all these small rooftop projects which is why they much prefer dealing with a large-scale solar farm or a large-scale wind farm with its own substation where they can they know have a much better idea how much it's going to produce so is that why the the battery industry the recharge uh, portion of this for the smaller projects uh, could play a key role in this absolutely if you can instead of sending excess electricity from your solar rooftop to back to the grid. If you can charge up your batteries at home because you have batteries there, so the excess electricity goes into there that you're not using, that's that's a great answer for that. But battery storage is key. Yeah. Excellent. This is this is a really great I, I just thought it was a good topic to get out in front of our business owners for them to think about. Uh, again, Carter's gonna put all this in his policy update uh, with the links so that people can watch the watch the 35 minutes or 37 minutes or whatever it was, um, the presentation. They can download the slides. They can take a look at it. Um, Randy's information is on there. They can contact Randy if they have questions or uh, would like to offer input. But again, Mark, I'll go back as we wrap up here. This is one of those opportunities where we want to share information with our, our listeners because we want them to provide input. Good, bad, or indifferent, we're not telling you which way you should be, but if this is going to affect your business in a positive or negative way, you want to have that input and and provide them with feedback. It's about decisions are made by those who show up. And in this case, this is a, a fairly long-term process. I think you said, what, three to five years probably, the timeline, Carter? Yeah. I think they want to make a decision by 2025. August of 2025 is when they want to start being able to hand these grants out. So we have to submit our proposal by March 24? Yeah, the preliminary one. The grant yeah. program in total goes for four years, but it's it's just the beginning. Okay, so the, being in phases, now is the time to start submitting and getting your opinions on the record. Yes, because this process is, or the tr- <laughs> literally, the, in this case, the train has left the station. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, and I mean, again, it's it's one of those things we want to provide information and make sure that people uh, are providing input. Just like last week, 
when we had Jerry Pigsley in and we talked about the Department of Labor Standards. So uh, important things for business owners to take a look at. Um, and it may it, it may be your industry. It may be uh, you may not be one that's putting in solar, but it may affect your your industry because you per, you install solar, those kind of projects. So. Or it could affect one of your suppliers. Absolutely. So uh, stay tuned. Carter will get more and uh, we'll make sure we get all that information out. If anything new becomes available, we'll make sure to share it. And uh, next week you'll get the, the smooth tones of Carter on the uh, uh, on the podcast. So you'll have a good time there. All right. Thanks to Phil Young, Carter, Bud, and uh, that's been the Lincoln Business Beat from the Lincoln Independent Business Association and KLIN Radio. Reviewing and updating business owners and community members about what's happening in the business community in and around Lincoln. Along with LIBA President and CEO Bud Seinhorst, I'm Mark Vale. Lincoln Business Beat is made possible by the 1890 Initiative. Visit 1890Nebraska.com where 100% of your donation goes directly to Husker student-athletes.